0: we are once again dipping into parables, and we were going to be talking about parables through December. Parables are a wonderful way to try to get a sense of what Jesus was on about. What was Jesus up to? What were his concerns? What was he doing on purpose in Galilee, in Jerusalem, at the time of his life? These parables are not always easy to understand because they're not straightforward, That's a, they're Um, Some of them are quite straightforward, but there's, there's hidden meanings. There are meanings that if you're at the time and place, you would hear more clearly. And many of them create a sense of dismay or discomfort for the hearer. And so we don't want to actually enter into that discomfort too much. We don't want to feel that dismay. And some of our church doctrines and some of our translators are only too happy to help us feel better about what it might actually say. And it's a real struggle. It's a real struggle because we don't really know. Even the best of us are working to figure out the best way in so that we can bring our faithful hearts and understanding to the Scripture. But the Scripture teaches us deeply. And this particular parable is a teaching parable for us because it's different. And so we're going to go in and we're going to unpack it a little bit and we're going to return to... This wonderful list that we've seen now, we're going to continue to see this just because I want us to stay grounded that these parables really do have a way in, that we don't really have to make up whatever it is we think it means because we have ways to get into these parables and dig out their complexity. So this one is definitely more complex. It doesn't have a nice, easy, takeaway message. Jesus wants us and asks us to have the courage to step into the story he is trying to tell. Jesus wanted the people to take the time to engage and feel the message, and I try to invite you every Sunday to do the same. These are not easy, pat stories. They're hard stories. They're supposed to be challenging stories. Part of our scriptural faith asks us to step up to the work of really looking at the scriptures and really trying to understand what's really there. Not what Uncle Joe told us was there, not what some Bible commentary said, but how do we look faithfully into the scripture and really try to better understand So, um, this particular story, the wicked tenants, where the wicked tenants of a vineyard have taken over the vineyard, and every time the landowner sends somebody to share the produce or to gather the produce that is the portion of the landowner, they get beaten down. This story doesn't come out in a vacuum. There are real things going on the ground. We get a real story, it's a longer parable than most. We get a cast of characters who have lines and actions. Jesus is clearly dealing with something big. And so this is a big parable. But we can start right away by shifting through some of the basics. Time and place. The time and place for the story is right at the end of Jesus' lifetime. Jesus is in Jerusalem during Passover. He has gained an enormous reputation and is surrounded by followers and disciples. He is a holy man of high standing to many. Jesus is addressing real people. He is in conversation with some of the most important priests and teachers and elders and families in the, table, in the temple. And That's who he tells this story to. They are testing him insulting him. They are trying to either determine if he is really the son of God and therefore could be more powerful than they are, or they want to silence and discredit him. Jesus is talking about real issues, specifically in this case, the real life corruption of the high priests and ruling families of Jerusalem. He is calling them out. This story, especially as it appears in Matthew, and this according to Klein Snodgrass, who I just love his work on the parables, is phrased here, this Matthew. Matthew writes the parable with little bits of changes that really, really bring about that aha moment of dismay when the hearer realized Jesus is telling this story about them. And it's not a good story to have be about you. So, to recap, this is a short story as told by Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem in the final days of Jesus' life. He is surrounded by his followers and addressing a number of very important men who ruled Jerusalem. He is confronting them about their corruption, and he is doing it with a story so that they will lean in and listen and maybe even that message will sink down and change their hearts. So, here we go into a little more of the meat of this parable. This is where the layers of complexity come in and where we get off track in our commentaries too often. Jesus contrasts the behavior of the corrupt priests and officials with the expectations of God for Israel's behavior. So there is one way of behaving that God asks for and a wholly different way that the high priests are behaving. So the setting of the story is a really good starting place because this story tells us something about God and something about humanity as all parables do. And Jesus sets it in a vineyard. There was a landowner of a vineyard. A vineyard is pretty easy to relate to. Everybody knows what a real-life vineyard is, and everybody knows that it is the chosen way that God often talks about Israel. Now, often we want to make that vineyard a heavenly thing. We hear the word vineyard, and immediately commentators want to just beam up somewhere else. Oh, it's not really about life on earth. It's an allegory, and sometimes in our... In our Hurry to dismiss inerrancy, we use allegory to say there's no power in this story, to dismiss it as merely myth. And I would suggest that neither are correct and both are true. Something real is happening here, but it's a lot bigger than the literal words on the page. So, the story is not about heaven or some ever after or other place. This story is about the real world. And um, anybody see the movie Shrek? right. So in the movie, the ogre is walking with, is it the donkey? I think it's the donkey or the girl. The donkey, I think and trying to explain what ogres are like to the donkey. And every time he explains it, he gets a slightly different thing that ogres are like, and it doesn't actually make any sense. And so finally, Shrek says, well, ogres are like onions. They have layers. Parables have layers, too. But we're going to use cake, because it's way tastier than onions. So you can see we have these layers, and this is often how we pull these parables apart. We say that this parable has something about God and something about humanity, and we separate them. So the thing is, though, this isn't, this, this story, let's think about it differently. Let's think about it as marbling. They don't mix so that they're indistinct but neither can they be separate from one another. When we talk about God in these parables and we talk about humanity, if somebody offers you a a commentary that tells you that it's about this ever after stuff, you might wanna think about this cake. Or if somebody tells you, well it's not about anything that has any metaphysics, you might wanna remind them about the cake. So real cake, real world, real information about God, starting the story with a vineyard vineyard connects Jesus to the most ancient and most current traditions of both God and the people of Judea in a single opening remark. In fact, it takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a cultivated green paradise where God literally comes down to earth. It is a walled garden that was that held the known cosmos of the divine, so this whatever the universe of that God was, and there were many gods in the ancient times, that God was fully present there in that garden. We would call that thin space where we feel like we are literally in the presence of God, that maybe we could actually see God out of the corners of our eyes. This vineyard, this Eden, this garden, this rich connection throughout the tradition, Jesus pulls that too into this telling of the parable, marbling the real vineyard of the world with this longed-for paradise, this Eden. What is possible right here? We are so used to scarcity that we forget that it is often our own economic unfairnesses that mean that some people go hungry while others have too much. We just assume that we cannot all be fed. But that is not true. There is enough food to feed every mouth. As one agriculture professor told me once, we don't have a production problem, we have a sharing problem. Here's an example. Okay, and this is a shout-out to Terry, our amazing treasurer. I don't know where he is. There he is! Yay, Terry! Okay, so he works for Harry & David, and he told me the other night that the peach harvest this year at Harry & David, uh, they have 160 acres of peach orchard and 2,000 acres of pears. So that's the Medford Airport twice. That's it. That's big. But it's not that big, right? I mean, it's just the Medford Airport twice. Out of that space, Harry and David sold, not produced, but sold 236,000 pounds of peaches just at the peach sale at the Harry and David store, with many more given out locally, uh, with many uh, things given to local organizations. Our church and our Tuesday dinner has been the recipient of the generosity of Harry and David, Not all of it even got picked from the trees. And then there were even more pears. Harry and David produced over 15,000 tons of pears this year. So, I'm not a farmer. (laughs) So, the yields of this blows my mind. So, our earth produces plentifully, we do, in fact, have the potential to share abundance, even with all our clever tricks that have boosted yields, and maybe especially for those. Think how that speaks to these fears of scarcity that we tend to hold tight, that there won't really be enough, that we can't really help that we can't really have an economically fair world cuz there's just not going to be enough anyway. This sort of blows that wide open and that's just right here. That's just here. So we bite into the pears and the peaches and talk about thin space, right? Who bit into a one of those juicy pears this year? Weren't they just amazing this year? And just like felt like, "Oh, this is like heaven on earth." Anybody do that? Or make a peach pie? Yeah? Yeah. I know I did. I was in heaven. I was in peach heaven. Um, So this good earth, this abundance, is not some ancient place in Genesis. Right? We think of, okay, so it's chronology. It's 2018, and Genesis came at the beginning, so that must be 10,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago. We want to plot it on a timeline. It's not a time story. It's a place story, It's a a human story about who, who we are and where we come from. So Genesis, the Garden of Eden, is right now. And in the ancient Mesopotamian days, they built these gardens and they built these temples, recreating this idea of the vineyard, the plenty, the garden of God right there on earth. So... Adam and Eve tended the garden and would walk up the stairs of the great tower to heaven and leave offerings to give God what belonged to God. And of the garden, of course, it belonged to God. Everything belongs to God. And the ancients understood this. They knew that all creation belonged to God. So sometimes we forget that we pray every day for earth as it is in heaven. We have lost the awareness that when Jesus says the vineyard, he means Israel, but he also means creation and spaces where there is plenty and abundance. We get confused about who all those pears and peaches actually belong to, but Jesus in this parable is not confused at all. Israel, the land, the fruit, the flesh, the blood, they all belong to God. Now, some are going to hear my words, right? And they're going to say that I'm taking away from them. That if owning the plenty of the land is the goal for us, if the goal is to have bigger barns, right? There's the story of the bigger barns. If the goal is to keep the vineyard for yourself and all its profits, we might say, we worked for this. We own it. The wicked tenants might be saying that to the son who comes to claim the vineyard. The greedy vineyard owner might say, I want all of that for me. I own it. And there's a disconnect. So we think we are diminished when someone says, you don't own that. But really, it's, an, it's a promotion. Our love of ownership takes us in the wrong direction. And we think that when we're challenged on that, it means that we're not worthy to eat the peach, that we're not worthy to have the things that we want. But I would say, I do not take anything away from you, far from it. To be given a gift from God is far more precious than anything you can own. Think of your children and your grandchildren. Think of the redwoods. Think of heaven. Now, think of that peach. What an amazing gift, and you get to partake of it right here as part of this good earth and this good gift, God's vineyard here on earth. Everything of importance that happened between humans and God happened on the ground. The earth and this creation is God's ground of relationship to humans. So this vineyard is the story, a real vineyard in a real place called Israel, And it is also the claimed space of creation of God. Jesus sits on the grounds at the Jerusalem temple. This is the place that is supposed to be the new representation of God's Eden, the vineyard where God touches earth, the thinnest space of all. The vineyard of Israel where God settles in with us, where the whole universe is marbled together. And that is the irony. That is the point of dismay. King Herod has built a mighty temple, but it is no testimony to God's power. It is a testimony to himself. The ruling families of Judea lord themselves over it. Wicked Tenants of the vineyard they are, building watchtowers over lush, fertile land, not to serve their neighbor and their God, but to ensure their rights, to take for themselves whatever they wished. They weren't just stealing from the widow with a widow's might, but they were stealing from the lesser priests and stealing the temple tithes to line their pockets. They sent out ruffians and servants to shake down and do violence to those living on the land to make them pay up. That was literally happening. So, when you hear in this story how the uh, servant goes to the vineyard, there's all these layers of what is actually happening here. Who is beating up who? Where is the violence? Because it is back and forth. There are villages where they would band together to beat the servant who was coming because that servant and his crew were thugs coming to take what they had. And there are the reverse as well. This was not the way the vineyard of Israel was supposed to be. There were wicked men who were the stewards of God's vineyard. God's land of plenty, God's orchards, God's shalom. They were making a mockery of it and shaming themselves and worse, shaming God. So, real world time and place. The actual Jerusalem is an actual temple built by Herod, a huge and daunting structure. Sure, it's awe-inspiring. It's carved, ornate, gigantic courtyards. The temple itself elevated on high with some of the foundation stones larger than the ones used to build the giant pyramids. Some of those stones are over 150,000 pounds. The cornerstones weighed 50 tons or more. This giant temple is supposed to be God's place on earth, but just the day before, Jesus and his disciples had been in that temple condemning the business that was done there, overturning the temples of the money changers, letting the animals out of their cages. It was a racket to make money the way they were doing it, and it especially hurt the poor. Here's the story again, this time from Mark. Jesus and his disciples were walking around the temple The chief priests, legal experts, and elders came to him. They said, what kind of authority do you have for what you are doing? Jesus spoke to them in parables. He said, a man planted a vineyard, built a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. Then he rented it to tenant farmers and took a trip. When it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenants his share of the fruit of the vineyard. But they grabbed the servant, beat him, and sent him away, empty-handed. Again, the landowner sent another servant to them, but they struck him on the head and treated him disgracefully. He sent another one, and they killed him. The landlord sent many more servants, but the tenants beat some and killed others. Now the landowner had one son whom he loved dearly and sent him last, thinking, "'They will respect my son.'" But those tenant farmers said to each other, this is the heir, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they grabbed him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. In Luke, it is only the son who is killed. Luke elevates the connection between the son and Christ. But Mark is not doing that here. So what will the owner of the vineyard do, Jesus asks. Will he come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others? Haven't you read this scripture? The cornerstone that the builders rejected, the stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone. The Lord has done this. The elders and the chief priests wanted to arrest Jesus right then because they knew he had told the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. When this story came to the first ears to hear it, it was a time of tremendous change. In just a few years, the Judean world would collapse under the dual forces of its own infighting and the power of the insatiable priests and in Roman Empire. The temple, all the stones that could be moved were thrown down. The ornamenture, everything was destroyed. And all Judeans were expelled from Jerusalem. The plenty, the vineyard of God, our daily Israel, instead became devoid of the divine. The land and the love of God are melded and marbled together with nothing good to hold our Eden up. It was crushed under the weight of greed and violence. King Herod had built an enormous temple, but he had neglected the cornerstone of the entire structure. Good law, God's good law, good plenty, the son who we would call the Christ. The temple kneels not to God, but instead it is made to kneel to greed, and kneel it did, buckling at the knees as greed overwhelmed it. If this story doesn't raise the hair on the back of your neck, I don't know what will. Without compassion, without honesty, without good law, whole systems become corrupt and fall into wickedness. Where today do we see good law flouted and compassion left to rot on the threshing floor? This story may be ancient, but this story is right now. Every layer. In our personal lives, in our church lives, in our national lives, where are our cornerstones? What have we built our lives on? Do we trust in God? Do we think of this vineyard as pure allegory and myth, dismissing it as having no bearing on the present power of everyday life? Or do we believe the good news of Jesus Christ enough to push back against the forces of poverty and greed so that we may know Eden and have enough? Parables dismay us. This parable was designed to dismay the elders and the chief priests, and it did. It really did. But if we are really listening, it might dismay us too in our home lives, in our church lives? Where are the cornerstones of our church? What do we put at the center of our life together? Our service and mission and scripture, the foundations of our faith? Because Jesus is asking us, do you have ears to hear? Amen.